0: hey welcome to podcast cold turkey this week i'm sitting down with jessica um special episode kind of you know like the the conversation went um across multiple subjects uh it may sound for my regular listeners to a kind of a a different path that jessica and i engaged on uh in terms of our conversation but i really did appreciate it you know like it, it was it was a Refreshing and and kind of uh, new conversation um, of the usual program, but it was it was fantastic, and I um, appreciated um, her openness. And um, you know, she wanted to talk about her book and her, her traveling and uh, a bit of her career, and um, everything fell. You know, it, like I felt it was perfect, and um, and you know, I don't want to spoil any of the details of our conversation. And so without further ado, here's Jessica, enjoy. Hey jessica how you doing
1: doing well thanks thanks for having me
0: um uh, it's a pleasure you know like I, i'm always almost like um i'm all, all, almost in shock every time someone reaches out you know like to be to be part of that journey that i've started two years ago you know like it's it's um it's flattering it's uh humbling it's uh it's something that i never would have expected started with friends started with people that were close to me And started kind of reaching out a bit. But, you know, I kind of almost shy doing it. And um, eventually it became um, like almost like an uncontrollable beast of people reaching out. And like, can we be part of that? Like, yeah, sure.
1: I I don't buy that you're shy for a moment, not for a (laughs) split second. So you're not going to convince me of that. We'll see how the Would next you, hour goes, but I, I <laughs> doubt very much. Will convince me of that.
0: Would you believe that my wife is the social one in that couple? You know, like that's you that know, just uh,
1: means that she's incredibly <laughs> outgoing, and that you're just compared to her, not so yeah, not quite as much. That's all. Yeah, that's
0: what that tells me. You, so yeah, you got that right. sorry, I'm
1: a skeptic. Can't can't get me there. yet. <laughs> well, good to be um, here, uh, and I'm excited to talk to you about uh, my own cold turkey experiences and. Uh, and, uh, you know, share that with my, with your audience.
0: Can't wait to hear it. Um, I'm, j- I'm just going to start off by, you know, like kind of a twofold question. The first one is where are you located and what region are you located on that planet? And uh, the second is um, how has been the pandemic for you? You know, like in terms of impact, in terms of what you heard, people around you, um, you know, and the reason why I keep asking the question is super simple is that, I've heard a lot about people being greatly impacted in their mental state. And um the other thing is that I'm pretty convinced that we're not finished yet. You know, like the, even though you know, yeah. like the, the news is eager and thirsty for like the phase three and phase four or wave three and wave six, what I is gonna be um kind of the the true po- postmortem of that uh are gonna be severe case of um Truly diagnose PTSD of you know like people you know like having been you know like severely hurt or or wounded uh, mentally by the mm-hmm. you know like the the isolation and the, you know like the anxiety and all that. So uh, kind of throwing that question out there for you. Yeah, you know, like, or, um, I yeah. don't
1: think I disagree with you on that, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But I I live in the Washington D.C. banlieue the suburbs of Washington D.C. I've been here about going on 15 years I've lived all over this area Um, and that's of course in North America in the United States (laughs) Um, but I spent a considerable amount of my life near the Canadian border Uh, lived grew up in Michigan spent a number of years in upstate New York and um, have been to all of your major east coast cities And quite a few on the West Coast, including Calgary and um, in BC because of the oil industry and uh, the fisheries up in the Northwest. I have been to Kitimat, in fact, British Columbia. Have you heard of Kitimat?
0: No, that must. That sounds uh... pretty
1: dang far. It's right close. It's closer to Alaska than it is to um, the capital of BC.
0: I have to tell you.
1: It's beautiful for probably four weeks of the year. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, you made me think that you know like i once traveled from montreal to ontario with oh, you know gosh. like a, a a nissan micra which was like a chunk of a car and the, obviously the car broke down and uh when i stopped the car and tried to push off the highway um i you know like i'm, I'm so i get to the next exit and walk and see like a tim horton and the canadian tire and so i go to the canadian tire and say hey guys so my car doesn't exist on on car books because it's a I think it was only made for Canadians, but you know, like it, it all they had, it was, you know, uh, catalogs of car for the U S so they couldn't find my car oh, in their, their, their book. So he's like, what kind of car you have? I'm like, well, it's a Nissan Micron. i was like, it doesn't exist. I'm like, well, it does, because it's broke down like on the <laughs> highway right <laughs> Can now. Can I
1: show you how much it <laughs> exists? Please come out to the highway.
0: <laughs> and I, and I asked the guy, where the hell am I? And the guy says, you're in Napanee, my friend the deepest hole of Ontario. (laughs) And when you said the name of your city, you just mentioned, I was just about to say probably the deepest hole hole of the BC.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful though. Really, really beautiful, but very, you know, basically fishing, you know, did did my laundry in the laundromat with a bunch of, you know, people that were in the oil industry, maybe on their way to and from, or people working out on big fishing rigs. uh, uh, That's the, that's the biz. Forestry too, probably, but uh, yeah. yeah,
0: lots of pretty, greens. Pretty
1: beautiful. Yeah, a lot of greens. There's some very clear air. Rivals Sweden. Beautiful, beautiful country. I mean, you're you, Canada is gorgeous. Uh, you just need more people and
0: less cold. I mean, the cold is. Uh, we got enough of that, you <laughs> <right>? no doubt. <laughs> we we're, need more
1: Canadians. That's you know, we need a little more population because there are places where you can break down in like Saskatchewan or Manitoba and you don't have a CAA guy anywhere nearby. So you're no, lucky you no, found I mean,
0: <laughs> No way. Even in Quebec. I mean, like there are places that you're like, where, where am I? You know, like I, yeah. I, um, just, um, we, we bought a puppy, uh, two, well, right in like January and February or January, but whatever, you know, like we, we, we went and it was like two, three hours from home. And, so I, you know, like you, you put that in Google map and just like drive wherever it tells you to drive. And, and um,
1: I never seen,
0: <laughs> I mean, I'd never seen the places I I, I was, you know, you know, yeah. I, the, the roads. I was like, where the hell am I right now? You I know, mean, like, w- w- it's beautiful, but you know, like, and my wife's like, what do people do for a living here you know like there's nothing well,
1: they have puppy farms that's what they do
0: <laughs> they must, they yeah. must. Yeah, yeah that's, that's where living, all right? worldwide puppies come from um great um and so, no, yeah. you
1: asked about the pandemic i do, and i did yep. want to get back to that um uh even of course i did get a puppy during the pandemic so there's my segue uh, we got a mini Bernadoodle uh, who is crazy and has eaten every plastic item, loves to eat garbage, the bloodier and snottier, the better. She's really, she's very rascally. She's quite, she should be called rascal or socks. We named her birdie. Um, but I think we were really on the whole pretty fortunate um, in how we, uh, w- we are not super fear factor type folks. And I'm a pretty. Big adventurer and believer in confronting my own fears, and that's part of my cold turkey story that we'll get into. Um, And so, I think like the first couple months, yeah, I was like wiping down the groceries and stuff. But we potted with our neighbors. Um, We were already in a private school, a little teeny private school. So my daughter, my six-year-old, stayed in school, and um, we had um, we had help from our. Uh, then au pair, who got married and then became our nanny um, with the, with the three- year- old. And so we really kind of rolled through it. We just spent an awful lot of time with our neighbors, got to know them quite a bit better, which isn't a bad thing at all. And I think I got to know uh, my greater neighborhood quite a bit better. Uh, I don't uh, What's odd is that you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a journalist that literally left my job at, at the White House two years ago. And a year on was then like, then the pandemic t- pandemic came and I didn't leave the house. I was just broadcasting and doing stuff from inside the house. So all the stuff that happened, you know, the the violence and then January 6th, then the, I mean, I covered the inauguration, but I didn't, I wasn't there on January 6th. So I don't even know just the way our city changed. I wasn't really privy to it. So that by the time the inauguration happened, I'm like going through my city and it feels like dystopic, like a dystopic future because there's all these um empty, boarded up uh businesses and um roadblocks and concrete walls and just a lot of tons of security. I mean I was staying in a I just I stayed in a hotel around the corner from my old job and I was like, you know, there with the National Guard and the local, you know, police forces that had been sent there for protection for the inauguration. Um which isn't unusual to have some extra security to be sure, but it was it was nuts, it was super nuts. And um, you just, it sort of, I wasn't here during 9-11, but I feel like that's close. There's some parallels there just with respect to how shaken everybody was and how um, scared everybody was. And I think it probably, you know, obviously the pandemic did a lot of strange things to people. I'm most concerned about children, yeah. I, think, I think certain ages of children really got a raw deal, not just because they weren't in school, but because wearing a mask doesn't really allow you to interact naturally with people. And it teaches you to be afraid of your own breath yeah. and what that could do to someone else. And if you don't know why you're doing it, because you're too young um, to understand, just knowing that you have to do it, you don't necessarily make a positive association that you're doing something good for somebody else. You think that you're the threat. Um, so I think we're going to have a lot of, uh, time to work uh, out those issues. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm worked a lot on issues with China and my big concern there is that if we're in this sort of race West versus East in some, some manner, uh, that's a zero sum game as the Chinese would say. So that would, they wouldn't like that construct. But if you consider the impact that we've had on our own education and innovation, because of the setbacks of not being in school and 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 substituting very poor substitutes for education we've really set ourselves back economically and i i don't think we i'm not really proud of how our country did frankly um <clears throat> not just because of the leadership but because of the way we ruled by fear yeah and gave into fear and didn't innovate our ways out of fear which would have been you know there would have been a time where that would have been how we led um
0: and media are a big culprit media a big culprit of that right you know, like media you know i i don't want to yeah
1: and i know you can beat up on the media and i would own i would own some measure of that but we are only as good as our education or our information and the problem really is that uh among many other things we are not good at we are not terribly good at science and math and so yeah. it's very difficult to report on this complex of an issue. We, you know, I covered Ebola, I covered Zika. Um, this is not the same thing. The way it was transmitted, I mean, it's not like AIDS. It's, 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 it, 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 I guess you could say it's similar to SARS, but we didn't have uh, SARS, uh, a bad uh, SARS uh, epidemic here. So, um, yeah. And, and, And so I think what happened is the way that that the media communicated and and tried to be forceful in the public health messaging actually has resulted in us being, as a people, much less trustful of the government. And I think that's what in part has led to the rise in people reticent to take the vaccine because they don't trust the government that set it in motion and they don't trust the people who are speaking on its behalf. yeah, there's a lot of damage. Um, the the I don't wanna... all
0: that, the polarization as well. You know, like and, and I was about yeah. to say about the media is that you know, like the the, the main problem. And I'm going to talk about local local media of what I what I see every day. You know, like I I, I do watch uh, some Are of more of the. Are you watching
1: Buffalo? The... Are you watching Vermont or? What do don't, you get at p- you, you got you got well, TVR. You know, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. I can watch TVR and Radio Canada. And you know, like but but yeah. no,
1: Richa- seriously, Rochelle and I are, are buddies. Rochelle La Tondres, the White House correspondent.
0: Yep. He and his wife Tracy, yeah, good
1: people. Good people. And, but and, yeah, but but ruling by fear, I don't think that you know the people covering the White House during that period of time talk about fear factor. The Trump administration didn't really Crack down on health protocols, and so it was. It was pretty scary.
0: It, well, that's that's from the U.S. perspective. That's what that's what was weird is that you had the biggest skeptic of the <laughs> pandemic,
1: skeptic in chief. <laughs>
0: you know, it was exactly you know, like so that made it even more difficult and more polarizing for for you guys. And but 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 at the same time, right now what I see is like an eagerness for like a fort wave or, or, or a variant that, you know, like, even though you're, you're vaccinated, you know, like you can die, you know, I'm like, well, relax guys. So like, either, you know, <laughs> that a variant, it would be so violent that, you know, like we're, we're pretty much crude or, um, you know, like just, just be careful about, you know, like the way you present that. know so like, it's, it's, you know, like, it's funny, we're at our 25th anniversary of, of a, a flood that happened in Lake Saint-Jean, and, you know, like, it was, like, a big thing at the time, but it's been 25 years, right? You know, like, so it's not, like, thousands of people, you know, like, it's not September 11, it's a freaking flood, you know, like, a few people died, but, you know, like, I'm not minimizing, but what I'm saying is that it was, it was big at the time, but right now, and, you know, like, 25 years later, it's like, eh, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, okay, it's been 25 years, you know, so... But you feel that the, the news media are just, like, eager to get something as crazy. but And they won't, as the pandemic was for um, content. Um, mm. And, you know, we spent all week on Monday News uh, casts just watching that commemoration of that 25th anniversary. And I was like, well, oh, come on, guys. You know, like, it's, it's, you know, like, don't we have other, you know... <laughs> isn't there anything else you can actually tell Mm -hmm. me about you know like anyways like there's really a feeling that um it has changed uh on that front but one other question that i got for you uh, jessica is um Mm -hmm. what about what about your nest you know like that was something that you know like i i got my wife my my son um and you know all of a sudden you know like we're 24 7 um right next to each other and uh, it challenged the nest um you know it, you're, you're it, saying I don't know the word you. nest
1: like n-e-s-t
0: yeah. n-e-s-t you know I could, nest.
1: Yeah. yeah uh well i have small children so they're actually while they're noisy they're kind of fun they're not moody teenagers so that's a plus um yeah. i actually do like my husband i still love my husband so that's also a huge plus um and I, I didn't too. see very much before with the pandemic. <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, our family grew a lot closer. Uh, we spent a lot more time uh, you know, with each other. We had a lot of fires. We burned a lot of stuff. Uh, a lot of wood, a lot of yard waste, our our gardens look great. Um <laughs> and we grew our own veggies, you know, like we have land. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what else are you gonna do? Have fires, drink wine, uh, or beer, uh, or other substances of an alcoholic nature, not the children, uh, and grow things and uh watch good watch movies. I mean, we were we're already at that time in our again. I feel incredibly fortunate. I don't want this to come across at all inconsiderate. Um, but but we did we really did, we were at a time in our life where we sort of, you know, would have had to be home a little bit more anyways because of the age of our kids. And um, now on the flip side, the level of concern, uh, my my dad is a physician and got COVID or something very close to COVID very early in the pandemic. So that was, that was scary. There was about three weeks in March of last year when my mother was, who was already religiously clean anyway, was literally like Lysoling every surface sleeping on the opposite side of the house passing him meals underneath the the door that sort of thing um and he said it was it was really bad but he is in his 60s and and he you know he made it uh no side effects or whatever um and he's now giving the vaccine so clearly a very big supporter of it uh But also someone that I could go to, to ask to sort of cut through the BS because he was getting so much education about it and was able to just know what to pay attention to and what not to. I mean, unless you're reading the actual medical data, it's really like reading the paper isn't the same as, as, as knowing how to read some of that medical information and that medical reporting. Even people I know who aren't physicians, but I, um, I, I covered, uh, biotech stocks um, last year for a financial services company. I did uh, was a financial journalist for them. And one of our analysts, because of investment purposes, was reading all the FDA reports pre-approval and had, had the knowledge base. to. So he, he actually told me we're probably not going to need two doses well before the government decided we needed two doses, um, which then cut our supply of vaccine in half. So it was just, yeah, I did feel like I had some people to ask, and um, again, my my orientation went from I did go I, I, at the beginning. I was definitely like freaking out from a, you know you just you can't, but now I'm like you know, not that it's not a bad thing, but I, we just haven't we haven't been very close to uh, bad cases of it. Um, we've prayed our way through the the people that we know that have had it, and. Um, we've been blessed to not lose anybody. Um, on the, uh, we do have family in New York though, where, I mean, they're irrevocably scarred because all they heard day and night were ambulances, people going to the hospital and never coming back. Yeah. Um, so they just, you know, they don't, they, they don't leave the house. They, I think it took them a year and a half to come visit anybody. So yeah, everybody's it's that's the unfair thing is it hasn't affected people in areas the same way. And, we didn't know until probably well into it how much underlying conditions had to do with your outcomes. Yep.
0: It was my first business lunch today. And it definitely felt weird. It was yeah. like, wow. You know. I can yeah. <laughs> it's so just just bizarre. And like I so was like, wow, you know, like I'm I'm actually going out and you know, like I have to shave and do my <laughs> do my hair. You know, like, wow, that's uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, well, the, the
1: COVID nineteen pounds, uh, you know, was or <laughs> kilos. Hopefully, nobody had nineteen <laughs> kilos, but uh, you know that part wasn't great. But we did, nope. yeah, we did try some new recipes. So,
0: yeah, yeah we did the
1: tomatoes on the vine.
0: I started yeah. good though, you know, like I started training like six days a week because you know, like we had to burn some time. You know, like it's it's like full time with the kid, and you know, like you need to occupy him, and you know, like so I would drop him in the um like the the running stroller and choose mm-hmm. like 10k and 15k and you know like by the end i was doing half marathons like 21k with the kid and the stroller and um, right. yeah so i was doing fa- fantastic and then it got cold and you know like i'm not going to go running with my son on the on the stroller and and me wearing spikes you know like that's not gonna happen so (laughs) uh and and so i got hit by the 19 covid 19 pound for sure (laughs) yeah it became like yeah so uh, so okay um back to regular schedule uh i i i kind of always um do the same thing which is like bringing back uh the the your life story tape to the beginning or at least to the first memories of stuff that has impacted you and that has eventually led to you know kind of you know like the obstacle or the challenge or the you know um what you want to talk to me about
1: well um so my story, I have many stories because of course I'm a storyteller, but uh, my focus of, uh, to talk to you about has to do with a book that I've written called Crossing the Divide, 20 Lessons to Help You Thrive in Cross-Cultural Environments. And the genesis of this book um, was the uh, experience I had about 10 years ago, electively sending myself on my own as a stringer to Afghanistan. And, uh, that was a cold Turkey moment in many ways, because it was a way out of a situation that I didn't really know how to get out of any other way. (laughs) So I went to war. Um, and it, and it, it had a number of, of positive, uh, and some not so positive impacts, but that was, that was the experience I wanted to share with your, um, with, with your listeners. Uh, and I guess the. The, the fear and the adventure that I confronted in that moment, probably the skills with which I tackled that probably go back to my childhood, which I also begin the book with. Um, it's just the idea that you you can't know other cultures unless you know your own. And the way I came to that conclusion as a kid is that I had a very multicultural or multi-religious Upbringing, my dad had converted fairly, in a fairly uh, big turn from Judaism to Christianity, and not just any kind of Christianity—evangelical um, Protestant Christianity. My mom had converted from Catholicism to the same, and they moved to Mobile, Alabama, from San Francisco to have to start a church. And so I was raised in Mobile, Alabama, by two Yankees. Uh, with Jewish ancestry and a Christian church. So there are just a lot of layers and a lot of things to unpack. And, How old were you? Uh, I was born there. Uh, I was not born in San Francisco. I was born in Mobile, Alabama. And I lived there till I was seven. And my brother was, I guess, four. Um, so, you know, not a huge amount of time, but some formative years. And the memories I have are are pretty... Uh, not so positive because I didn't feel that the culture I was in, whether it was the church culture or the Southern culture or both were very accepting of the kinds of outsized dreams I had as a a young person. Um, And so I I was sort of pushed to be myself come hell or high water. And that wasn't really that um, welcomed outside my family. My parents were good about supporting my sort of big dreams for a, uh, Broadway career, <laughs> Broadway musical theater career, which didn't have, didn't happen, but I got to dabble enough in my teens to realize I didn't want to do that. And I wanted to do television journalism. So it was all part of the process, but, um, but the moves that we made from there to the Michigan suburbs, and then to Amish country in central Pennsylvania, um, all of that was, was just part of the, the, um, the, the skill set that helped me do a lot of cross-cultural travel and journalism and study. Um, I, lo- I started spe- I started studying French when I was seven. I wound up um, studying it all through grade school and high school and into college and then lived in France in Strasbourg. Um, and Strasbourg. Um, and, you know, it, it, it only occasionally was useful when we lived in Michigan maybe to read the signs when we went to Windsor um but um but more recently as a White House correspondent for a Chinese network it was very useful in speaking with my counterparts at the United Nations or my other French-speaking or Canadian counterparts at the White House because there's a fairly big international press corps there Uh, and Washington's a pretty international town so um so that's been helpful as well uh but the Afghanistan thing, um, yeah, there was a lot hard about that. And, and I had been asked a number of times to talk about why I did that. And I just thought, you know, I should probably just write about it because uh, people are naturally curious. How do you do it? Why do you do it? But more, how do you do it? Um, and that kind of got the juices flowing. So um, I think I think I'll, I'll pause there for your follow
0: up. I mean, ooh so you know like what what has been the influence you know like just in terms of academia and you know like in terms of um the kind of kid you were and you know like it's going to lead up to you ending up in 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 afghanistan but you know i need you know like i absolutely want to know you know like the the what has been the impact on even like creating creating friendships um Or does your entourage become like, everyone has like the same beliefs and, you know, or you get confronted quite early?
1: Yeah. Um, um, I, so I, I took on my, my parents' faith and still have it. And it's very personal and dear to me. Um, and, but the, the refreshing thing about being raised by my parents is that there was always room for comparing and contrasting what I believe to other people in a considerate way. Um, and maybe even out debating a bit, um, at which we don't really do much anymore now because it's it's can be unpopular, but I think it's important to sharpen your ideas. Um so whether it was uh kind of holding the line on um friendships and staying out of kind of harmful friendships, I literally changed my friendships when I was 13. I kind of walked away from some that I felt were uh just not um not. I don't want to use the word, ed- the word edifying sounds very erudite. Um, they, the people that just were not, um, they weren't, they didn't know themselves well enough to know, and, and, and who does, right, at 13, but I guess I felt like I i didn't want to be around folks that were going to lead me into drugs or into harm's way, and I wound up breaking with my fr- friend group, uh, and it was a good thing I did, because that is where they wound up. Uh, one of them wound up in jail. Another just had a really terrible dis- eating disorder. Um, so I, I say that just to say, like, like the sense of self and the sense of purpose that I had from both my faith and being open enough to talk about that being a guiding principle for me, but also not the only defining principle of my life. That I wanted to be adventurous. That I wanted to be curious. Um, that I wanted to learn about other cultures, and I really was very fascinated. Of course, because of all the the French I was studying, uh, and with Francophone cultures and learning about them, and whether it's the Caribbean or West Africa or France itself or Canada, the Maritimes, um, I was just interested. And my my there were no other conversions in my family, so we were always faced with with situations where we were celebrating Jewish holidays with people who had not converted out of, outside of Judaism or who just wanted to celebrate it for the, the fact that ethnically other people in the family were. Um, and the same with the Catholic side of the family. There wasn't, um, you know, everything was a, a lot of ritual. And so learning to sort of participate and appreciate, but not, not necessarily find as much. I, I don't, I mean, I'm not a ritualistic person in that way. So I I don't think I ever really quite enjoyed it as much. I do. I do feel a great sense of connection and want to pass on to my own children and I am um, some of the the beautiful Jewish holidays, especially the family ones, Hanukkah and Passover in particular, because that's that's something you're sharing with people around the world, and it's just really, really marvelous to know that everybody just, is doing that at the same Jessica, moment. Yeah,
0: I have to ask. Yeah, I'm teen. You know, like I, you know, what, I, I can't, I can't, you know, like I, while you were skeptic of me being shy, I'm now yeah. skeptic of you as a teen. You know, like all I was, you know, like I was trying to find a way to freaking party.
1: oh yeah no I wasn't I was a total straight edge I wanted to stay out of trouble because I wanted to be successful that meant no boys no drugs no you know I mean I wanted to hang out with people I wanted a boyfriend I wanted to kiss somebody but I wasn't looking to like make children and I was really concerned that if I went if I was like too crazy that that things would happen that would get in the way of my professional ambitions so I really played it very safe Um, really really safe Um, a
0: true nerd a a true
1: yeah oh yeah (laughs) i mean maybe even more than nerd but yeah geek nerd i i I wanted to be excellent at my studies you know i worked hard um i did get to let my hair down when we moved to pennsylvania though because it was just oh it wasn't as competitive (laughs) it wasn't as competitive and it was this small town so like i was the I was the big city kid, and so it just was this whole different dynamic where I wasn't trying to keep, I wasn't really having to keep up with anybody. We were just kind of um, just having a good time, but we, we couldn't get into a lot of trouble because there wasn't a lot of trouble to get into. We weren't around a big city. Um, I didn't really know about a lot of drugs, and I wouldn't have been interested anyways. I, and I saw enough teenage pregnancy that I was like, that's not for me. That's going to totally kill my dream, so I'm not going to go down that road. Uh, so you and we end were up. Yeah, we, we we had the time of our lives traveling and doing music and all kinds of other things. So yeah, I kept I mean, busy.
0: And and again, nerdy which, girl. And, yeah, but <laughs> it, it does indicate that you were probably way more mature than your age, you know, or or average, you know, like people your age.
1: Well, I, I think that the fundamental part of my my faith that I was holding on to there, right, is that I I felt I was created for a purpose and I wanted to accomplish that purpose. I didn't want anything to stand in the way of that. And I thought, you know what? I know I'm, in, I know I'm, I don't feel pretty. I don't feel important or really good at any, uh, at any of these things apart from what I might be in the, this comparative space. But, um, but I, I really want to make something of myself and, um, and sort of be true to the calling I feel to to do some cool things with my life. And, and yeah, I was probably, if there was any fear that was motivating me, it was. <laughs> Anything getting in my way? I was, I, I didn't, I was not very friendly to gentlemen that even asked me out on a date because I was like, you know, like I want this, but I also don't want this to like really last and maybe turn into a relationship that I might have to like cut off if I want to do something else. So yeah, I was pretty to myself, I would say, in that department. And
0: and my my and my father, uh, my father, my mom was always about you know like academia something, but the culture. You know, like to develop, um, like a, you know, like a, a knowledge of culture and a knowledge, you know, like my mom didn't have the opportunity to go long, um, at school. Right. And she, she, Mm. she became like a house mom and, you know, I wanted to be, you know, I just was dedicated her life to, you know, our three children's, um, Mm -hmm. but, um,
1: Oh, yeah, she, but I had would. grown up with one of those, and I knew that wasn't what I wanted. I was very much reacting against what my mother Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and, but, my, but my mother wanted, you know, like, my mother could talk about pretty much anything, right? You know, like, she, she could talk about, um, and, you know, like the, the culture was super, super important for her. You know, like, so... Mm. Um, That's cool. All right, so, so you end up in journalism, you... Um, And so what led you to kind of have the, um, to to be tempted by going, um, in such a, well, let's say a dangerous country.
1: Well, um, I was basically faced in 2009 after the Obama inauguration. I was working that day covering it. Um, and then I was not booked for any other work for the rest of the year. And I was like, okay, I, I, up until that point was, had worked, um, as a day hire, I wasn't staff and I had no assurance of things changing. Every network had blown their budget on what up until then had been the longest, uh, election cycle or campaign cycle for us presidential politics. And they were tapped. So there wasn't extra money for, for day hires. And, um, I just, it was kind of a make or break moment. It was like, you know, I had, I tried to walk away from journalism, uh, two years prior thinking I was bad at it. And then just the bug, I just couldn't, you know, I just still loved it. And I still fell back into it. And, and this was another one of those tests of how hard do you want to fight to do something you love? And in this case, I just was like, well, I I kind of need a breakout moment here. There are other people doing this, and that was the only reason I even thought of it. I would not have thought of it. I don't think if I didn't know somebody else who was basically just a couple months ahead of me planning to go with a camera and ended up getting hired to be a, a Fox News correspondent for a number of of years, um, you know, but just literally showed up in Kabul with a camera and a microphone, and um, I was like, well, I can't exactly. Um, I guess I could try to do that too. I don't know how long I'll last out there, but um, there were a, it, yeah, there was just so many, so much research into how to do that. You know, whether what what flight to take, how to properly gear up with the with, with the military gear, and then the the camera gear, and making sure everything could could be small and could talk to each other, and that the systems were integral. And finding the clients and finding stories to tell the client, finding a translator, finding a fixer, um, finding sources. Uh, it was, it took about probably close to six months to get geared up to, to go to Afghanistan. Um, and it's still one of the best and defining, I would say really, you know, just raw going to, to, to learn, just showing up somewhere to learn and literally turning stories out of you know, conversations that lead to other conversations very organically instead of going with like a mission to tell certain stories. I mean, we did and, have some, but, but it was all organically grown through the people I met even prior to touching down in Kabul.
0: How, how does it work? You know, like, you know, like bring me to, you take a plane from wherever you were in the, in the U S to where you go in Europe first. like uh, how.
1: There's two ways to go. You can go through Delhi, which most people don't do, or you can go through Dubai, which more people do. Um, at least that was the the choices at the time. I actually took Delhi because I wanted that long flight to Delhi, and then I overnighted and then took a short flight to Kabul. Um, and was glad I did because on the way back, um, I got a little time in Delhi for a day while I waited for my flight. So that's and that's the only time I've gotten the opportunity to be there. So um, yeah, so there was that and and. I was also would not have, I mean, I fronted all the money. It was, it was a $10,000 trip with all the, the buildup of, of travel insurance and, and gear and plane ticket. And I was, I was a military embed for most of the time figuring out how to do that without a true, with sort of a freelance sponsor was tricky, but I did find somebody to sponsor my um, credentials and, um, that person is still running the long war journal writing about Afghanistan and and now not writing things that are very positive about Afghanistan with the wind down. Um, there's so many Afghans here in the DC area, actually, I think in part because they're, um, because of the, the government connections over the years, but there's a tremendous population here. So even now I meet people, a lot of places, um, and I'm trying to do a little bit of helping when I can with uh, the special immigrant visas that some of the translators and things that have helped the coalition are trying to come back on. Um, but that enabled me to find a network of people that could help me uh, over there. And so that was also helpful. Some of the journalism colleagues I had identified someone who could help me. And then that person led to the next person, then led to the next person. And, um that sound i found my fixer translator who's now at the uh, international america uh, excuse me the international red cross in geneva um
0: and but 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 you knew people there right you know like the reason i had to meet them i
1: had to meet them i didn't know so you didn't know you didn't know until and i didn't literally didn't know the person that i flew there to meet to be my translator i had never met him i had seen one photograph of him so imagine me, I'm a blonde haired, Western looking woman and I have complete, like, I looked ridiculous. I had, can't, I had basically like hiking gear and, and, and hiking boots on underneath a shower and covered my hair, had two huge backpacks and I'm walking out of the Kabul airport and I'm, a, it's just amazing that nobody thought I was a bomber because like, I looked crazy and I was sweating all over the place, you know? Um, Not that that would have been unusual because everybody was, but, and he was just like standing against a, he was this little kind of slight young man. I think he was probably 20, 22, 23. Um, And I was just like, okay, like you look like your picture. You have the cell phone I asked you to have. I haven't given you any money yet. And you did something on your own dime. That's a good sign you know, stupid or lucky, you know, take your pick. There was a lot of, of both in that trip, (laughs) a lot of getting lucky.
0: I have, you know, like we, we, my wife and I have a couple of friends that they do live in Haiti and that's probably the closest to a third world, you know, like third world country that, you know, like I've been to, and I've been twice, you know, for the wedding and and then for, you know, like just, just to meet, to go, to go see my friends. I wouldn't go right now, you know, obviously, right? No, but, um, They would come by um, twice a year to uh, (laughs) mostly come eat at the uh, pied cochon sugar shack. You know, like, so they would (laughs) get like, we we would just get, you know, like the best food while they're here. And, you know, like they would, they would crash at our home or, you know, like, and we, you know, I I appreciate these people like they they were my brothers and sisters. And, um, but The second, the first time he was actually not only expecting us, but we were like a group of like 30 people coming from mostly Montreal, you know, like to meet with him. So he had arranged everything from security to, you know, like to, to, to check, you know, like to security check to, to, uh, that our passport and all. And like, everything was, you know, kind of. Are you kidding uh, me?
1: What? Whoa.
0: I didn't get any of that
1: when I went to Haiti. You, You must know people.
0: He did, you know, (laughs) and does, um, so, you know, we're talking about, you know, like we're talking about, um, our friends are, you know, like the, some would say, you know, like the one percenters, right. You know, like they're, they're they're really, you know, like they have good jobs, They, you know, like they, they handle, uh, both, um, lotteries and, you know, like all kinds of stuff that, you know, like they're, they're doing well. Um, yeah and so you can imagine that you know like we're a group of 30 they said they, they put us you know like they kind of put, put us aside and um okay here you know like take your passports out you know like bang 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 we got stamped he's like okay take that line we cross right through and you know next thing you know we're in a bus and uh we're going to the their country house for the wedding so easy peasy i didn't see any of the chaos i was just like but we let, we stayed longer than most of the people. And mm-hmm. so the last four days we got back to Pétionville and then I started to say, I was like, Oh, ho, 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 that's what I see on the news. You know, like I was yeah. like, that's <laughs> holy cow. you know, like, that's not, but I was, you know, assured or, or, you know, like I could, I could rest assured that, you know, like I was with my friend, um, yeah, that man. Well, I think you know, that man, has a
1: big, that, that part is really key, right? Is that you have somebody that you yes. trust. Yeah. Yeah. It, and I it, just sort of have had to. to forge that when, when you're sort of, you're kind of putting your, your eggs in that basket, you have to forge it and, and assess trust and kind of just jump on it. And if you don't feel it, then you don't go or you don't do, yeah. you know? Um, and I do think that's a huge difference with my experience in Afghanistan, I don't, I don't think I would have had the same positive experience if I had been outside the wire for, for longer by myself, I would have wound up kidnapped or something, you know, just, it just wasn't safe and it was safer then than it has been since, um, because there was election security. I w- was going to cover the national, the first national election for Karzai that was right after Obama took over. So there was this big assessment, um, uh, of whether we should be there and who should stay and and you know at the time the british and the canadians were much more involved so there's a much bigger international coalition there than then there became uh, not so long after that because other people clearly saw that it was a losing battle before the americans did um so I, in some ways i may have been there at a heyday but yeah I, I i i prayed pretty hard and and knew that i was gonna have to be ready to die to do this. I mean, I, I made my will. I did my power of attorney. You know, I, I told, (laughs) I wrote down who was going to get my car and my couch, which is about all I had at the time. Uh, so it was sobering, but, uh, but I'm awfully glad I did it because there's so many conversations that I had with Afghans that wouldn't, would just wouldn't have happened any other way.
0: Um, what would you say, Jessica would be your, You know like you talked about like a a cold turkey moment what you know like is it the like the cultural shock that was for you something that you know like kind of almost like a cold shower of you know like wow you know like i didn't know people could live that way or could um was it that or it was something completely different
1: um I had a few because there were two. There were two culture clashes. There was, there was um, the culture clash with the Afghanistan way of life, and then there was the culture with the military way of life compared to the civilian way of life. Um, So I had a really intense moment uh, with Afghans in which there we the some females in the military had arranged a Shora, which is like a, a public meeting of women. Um, and it had to be, of course, hosted by a certain guy who gave his sort of protection to all the women that came. And the idea for them was to collect intelligence. The idea for me was that I wanted to tell a story about all of these women because I, I frankly had not ever seen that many women in Afghanistan, certainly not in one place at that point. And it it was visceral. I mean, it it just moved me to tears. It was I you know, I had been surrounded and working with almost exclusively men, whether they were Afghan men, I had met no Afghan women, not even the wives or sisters of the men I was working with. And in the military I didn't meet that many women either. Even though there are obviously women serving in the coalition military at the time. Um, So uh, yeah, it just, as a woman, it really hit me hard uh, and was so fascinating to see how they were adapting to technology at the time and how it was changing some of the traditions. So what I wound up writing about uh, from that experience wasn't a personal story, but it was a story of how cell phones were changing the the... the arranged marriage expectations such that, um, there were still arranged marriages, but the young ladies could get to know that the guy that they were supposed to end up with a little bit via text before they actually got hitched. So they didn't have any more power over getting married, but they had some more power over, um, not going in blind to the relationship. And, um, and that was just fascinating because the grandmothers who talked to us Said, you know, this is such a gift to my granddaughter that she can she can at least know this this guy that that the family has decided is going to be her husband. Um, I didn't get that opportunity, and um, you know there were these. This was nobody had smartphones in two thousand nine. Certainly not in Afghanistan. So it wasn't about video or or it was just SMS. But that ability was really. It was really treasured and, and seeing that, that kind of culture clash up close was was pretty cool. Um, in the military culture clash, sort of a cold t- turkey moment, for me, my main exposure to, to, the, U- to the U.S. military had been um, prior to that, just covering a- training accidents and maybe the odd person telling a story about a family who'd lost a, a service member. But to see the military in action when there's, when there's, fight, you know, when there's gunfire um, and you're being shot at and how they react and to see the sort of finely oiled machine of them working is to truly appreciate what they're supposed to be doing in a way that you don't really get to when you're not seeing them in action. And I, yeah. I really was surprised at how intelligent the office, you know, many of them Were I I had some real prejudices against people in the military. I just thought, you know, gosh, they're following orders. They're they're not thinking for themselves. I mean, especially the upper level um, colonels and majors. These were people getting master's degrees on the Internet while we were in Afghanistan. These were people with multiple um tours and and all kinds of skills and a lot of cross-cultural skills i mean they weren't meatheads right like that was my prejudice was that oh i'm just there's going to be a bunch of blockheads that just like to shoot things and kill people and uh, i didn't find that to be the case and some of the people who've been part of um even endorsing the book and um giving it to people in in uh, promotion ceremonies and whatnot have been real good resources for cross-cultural um Intelligence conversations, and how do you talk to this audience, and how do you thread the needle here or there? Because they had to do it. That was there was a lot of nation building in Afghanistan, and so the the, the international component of militaries working with each other. I mean, I met people from Italy and the French Legion, and Canada, of course, and the UK, and so the, you've got got an international group of people in the military, and then you've got all of their diplomatic services, the aid services, as well. And they're all working on this problem set and going about it differently with their communication styles and cultural assumptions. So um, they actually have quite a bit of really helpful observations on the subject of cultural intelligence.
0: And that must change completely the weight of the thank you for your service sentence.
1: That's a really good observation. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because... I can really appreciate how hard it, it is for particularly the US military to walk away from Afghanistan which very very likely is not going to have been left better than it was found
0: 20 years do you, ago. Do you think they're the are, 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 Do you think they're heartbroken that they, you know like, that they have to leave? I think you know, some
1: people saw the writing on the wall far sooner. Um, but other people really saw it through the lens of, Hey, I don't want anybody to die in vain. And, you know, I, I saw people die. They saw, they've seen far more people die. So you don't want that to be like, not meaningful in the sense that you, you won, but that's also not a reason to stay. And I'm, it's called the graveyard of empires for a reason, <laughs> yeah. as, as president Biden said in, in his remarks, talking about the end of the war, like, it's not a place that you, conquer it just isn't yeah and and that wasn't why the u.s and and its coalition partners went in the beginning and it you know my afghan friends there don't want to hear me say any of that because they feel completely abandoned because they have been because there were promises made that have not been kept uh particularly to the minorities
0: yeah and i i think you're right like i i well from now it's quite far an outside perspective if the promise was to clean quote unquote the country i mean
1: yeah or or something lofty like women's rights or minority rights i mean yeah that's just that, that's a very difficult promise to keep and that hurts right like I, I i was so amazing towards the end of my trip i went to a all-girls school in um west kabul so it was mostly minority girls one of the persecuted minorities it had been targeted by the taliban for that reason because they were shia muslims and girls that were being educated and um you know you just think of like this is the future of this country and and that that and i know that i think president biden shared a personal story too where he had promised at one point or been confronted by a an Afghan woman saying, I just want to finish my degree. I want to be a doctor for my country. And the idea that that a foreign military ha- is going to guarantee that or has to stay present to guarantee that, you know, that means the country can't stand on its own, if that's the case. And then it's not a country.
0: Yeah. What, how long did you stay there?
1: I was there two months. So not terribly long, but I literally called my therapist from... a a, a camp in Kabul. And I was like, should I go home? She's like, you're calling me from Kabul. What do you think? (laughs) I had just seen, (laughs) uh, yeah, I had just seen a ramp ceremony, um, which is the, the pomp and circumstance that happened for every fallen soldier or airman or, um, Marine. And, um, it was awful. It was just awful. And I had, I had, yeah, I had, I think I had seen that, guy get attacked from a helicopter because i was with his one of the commanders at the time and and later i went to walter reed and saw others that had been in that attack yeah it was just uh, yeah you start to kind of lose your shit you know <laughs> i think no i was doubt. there i think i, mean, I was there because i was all by myself just... too like i didn't have anybody to really talk about it with and and i did carry a lot for i, I carried a lot more than i realized i carried for a number of years. Um, right into my job with the Chinese. And then I was a yeller and a screamer. Which isn't really very helpful. In a Chinese culture. So that was a, a different problem set. But I'm convinced that I had that temperament. Because of what I had been through. And just not processed from Afghanistan.
0: And and like you said. you know, like Not only do you. You don't have anyone to vent out. But on top of that it's a, you have to stiffen up, you know, stiffen up, you know, like you can't just go like, Oh my God, this is so, you know, (laughs) this is so sad, you know, like.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I, and that's also why I think, you know, countries and militaries tell themselves, you know, we're doing this for the right reasons. We're doing these for no, this for noble reasons. And you keep the reason the bar keeps moving. It certainly did with this conflict, um, about what you're trying to achieve. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I, if you, if you stop and think about the trillions of dollars and the thousands of lives, it's, it's pretty intense. And and the things we ignored because we were focused there, that's really what I think about now. Um,
0: Which brings me to of another of
1: question. Yeah.
0: Brings me to another question, Jessica, you know, like what's your, you know, like having spent some time there and seeing kind of like face to face, not only the, the level of impl- implication but you know kind of the impact it has or doesn't have on you know a country that you're trying to i don't know get back on the right path may i say um mm-hmm. what's now your you know what's now your your personal you know like i don't i i know this is you know it it is a delicate subject matter especially that you know uh in the us in terms of the the relation with the military you know like w- w- in, in Canada it's a complete different relation we have with you know like the army and the military for us it's just like we don't even we have a hard time even almost justifying as i mean as popular opinion you know like we have a hard time almost justifying why we have an army you know like we're, you don't know, it's such uh, you know um but, yeah. but what, what what would be now your your opinion of you know like all these millions of trillions of dollars spent and you know what is you know, kind of, how do you feel about that now?
1: Um. Part of me feels like I wasn't skeptical enough when I was there because I didn't live through the lessons of Vietnam in particular. And the people I was around were, were true believers, which of course is what happens when you embed in the military. You get their view more pronounced than you get... Con- Uh, countervailing views um so and and i was very much interested in the things they were trying but even by the end of that two months when i realized they were trying to duplicate what they had done in iraq with counterinsurgency training um i thought uh, you know there's just these these countries are not similar enough for what works in Iraq to work here, and how long will it even work? I mean, now we know um, it didn't in Iraq with the reemergence of of radical factions and and ISIS. Um, so, yeah, I do think about that as a from a journalistic standpoint that I would be probably way more skeptical. Uh, my heart continues to go out to the people that I truly, that really, you know, befriended me and continue to keep in touch with me, and whose families I would love to to see in safety. Um, who who gave up things and worked worked on behalf of of not just the American government, but other governments and the Asia Society and such. Uh, you know, they're they're brave people with not a lot of good options.
0: Um, yeah and does it it doesn't empathate your 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 empathy for people that serve no. or you know like I, yeah, that's you know, like, really
1: hard I, I feel very conflicted because as an American I am thinking you know as a taxpayer as someone who knows people who've passed away in that conflict like what, what you have to ask is it worth it for blood and treasure and then you also look at people who who are most assuredly going to be wiped off the planet without our <laughs> A presence there keeping that from happening and and yet you know 20 years of training the military of afghanistan and the police force of afghanistan if they can't do it then it's not doable without a foreign power and that's the problem is is that that's been the nature of any foreign power that's come in be it the russians or the you know and the chinese will find the same thing they if they choose to get that involved um Yeah. So that it's, yeah,
0: I, I I just, I guess
1: the word is conflicted. I feel very conflicted because I care about people there that are in harm's way. And I don't like that. I'm at odds with people who have gone out on a limb to help me personally. and kept me safe.
0: And, you know, like getting back to my friends in Haiti, you know, like when I visited them, um, they would actually describe the kind of the spinning cycle in which they are you know he's like well you know like the u.n is about to leave kind of you know like putting us in check and uh we expect uh either a corrupt or multiple corrupt um political figure and us to uh a breaking point which they probably ne- well I know that they never expected for you know like the government the president to be killed, but you know like they they knew that you know like some point was a breaking point mm-hmm. and uh, the cycle starts over again you know like uh us puts us in check again, sends UN for five, six, seven years, and here we go again, you know um
1: yeah, and what happens is you create dependence, right I mean, yeah there's a whole other conversations around the parallels with domestic policy, but Clearly, in Haiti's case, because um, I was there after the earthquake, um, that's just, it is a completely, they're, they're, just like Afghanistan, there are people who have never known an, a scenario under which they could actually work for a private entity and make a living and support their families. Everybody has either been tied to the Haiti government or to a foreign power for aid yep. and and yep. the cottage industry of really smart people that are basically working at distributing money. They didn't, you know, money from other countries to the people of Haiti who, to who, yeah, they need it. But, but the idea it, there is like, you know, if, if you need it, then you should, as a country, try to, try to create the, the conditions under which you can provide it for your own people. But that just doesn't happen.
0: Absolutely. And it's super, and tough, it's a too. tragedy.
1: And I think we can all acknowledge that it's a tragedy and that doesn't mean my, you know, you, you, you're compassionless, but at some point, you know, this is the nature of a nation, What the difference between a nation and a non-nation is, are you, are you meeting the basic needs of your people in terms of protecting them and creating a government that's reliable? I mean, gosh, there's, I don't need to go off on, uh, on all that, but, um, yeah, it's just, it's, and and, I, and as a journalist, like what do you you, you you're going to tell the stories of the people in need? Of course, it's hard to tell the stories of corruption there, but there's certainly a lot of them, and that yeah. the corruption is endemic uh, in a lot of these countries, just as you're talking about, and that's the case in Afghanistan. Who knows how many how people were enriched by the policies and the, just the pouring money, as though you know, building another school, building another. I don't know. It's, it's obviously much more complex than that, but it's, it's, it wasn't made you, better.
0: You said school and you know, like I was about to say, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to take um, kind of a, a, a position, but I think that um, dictatorship is necessary unless you educate your population enough. Mm. That's crazy to say. And you probably take <laughs> a wild guess every time for some sadistic, you know, like th- there's a, a documentary right now on Netflix uh, that's called Tyrants. It um, goes over all of the worst tyrants in history. But one thing that I realized was that, well, you know, like if, if the guy is not that bad and you, you see IT you, people miss some of the less um, tyrannic mm-hmm. of these well, leaders. we about that the Arab Spring. Dec-
1: about what's that happened was, in the Middle East, in particular. Yeah, yeah, um,
0: and 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 unless, until, or unless you educate your population, you you can't expect, expect any democratic movement to you know like to to lead and strive. I mean,
1: and it how? doesn't happen. It doesn't also doesn't happen without at least a generation of of change of expectations, right?
0: Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah.
1: It's it's that that whole uh, pro- democratization. Uh, evangelism agenda that sort of happened under the second Bush administration. A little, yeah, I would just, again, I I look back and think I was really young when a lot of these things were happening and decisions were made. I was 20 on 9 11, 2021, something like that. And started and covering news at that age, but still realizing like I. I was, I was naive. I thought we could fix things that we clearly could not fix.
0: Yeah. Um, what's the biggest lesson you took back in your two backpacks and your... You know, <laughs> <laughs> your uh, your, your, your two heavy luggage... My two heavy uh, luggage is... ...return flight. <laughs>
1: um, some of it was... Uh, and I'm, I'm forever grateful to the people who prayed for my safety because I did feel like I was I had a strange sense of feeling protected in in really violent situations. Um, and that's sort of a metaphysical point. But I at the same time, because I had that, I also was kind of surprised at. At things I wound up doing and things I didn't wind up being scared to do, like running towards mortars instead of away from them because I wanted to get a good picture. Like just get into this mentality where you want to capture the moment that's not entirely sane. And and I'm very fortunate again, that they either weren't good, good aim, good aim, or uh, by the time it hit the ground, it did not nothing was i don't know it, it makes me sound kind of like a lunatic but there was an element to it that kind of is lunatic because you're and there were other journalists out there scurrying around with you know looking for mortars too they wanted to get even closer than me pretty
0: nice. i'm pretty sure that you know like, y- y- you have to lose a couple of wires yeah, you know, yeah like-
1: i guess so yeah but you don't yeah and 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 so who knows what that did to my my brain chemistry but um there's uh yeah, I I don't know. I, I'll never say you it wasn't miss worth it? it. There's part, you miss part it? of me, Well, the, there was just amazing adventure, especially that first week we weren't with the military. We we're outside the wire in the foothills of the Himalayas, the called the Hindu Kush Mountains. And just the raw, rugged beauty, that's the cover of the book, me walking in the mountains there with a the camera over my shoulder. And I mean, it's just, I can't tell you, you truly feel like you're on top of the world. And I'm not like a mountain climber, but you basically are, you're on the, you're, what do they call the, the, um, don't they call the Himalayas like the rooftop, the tabletop of the, of the world or something like that? Cause they're so high. Um, just, it just, you are truly going back in time, like hundreds and hundreds of years because the way people live without heat, without electricity, without running water is just primitive. And you're watching them with this existence that's like you know um the translator I was with was buying uh at one point from a gentleman who was weighing on a scale with rocks the thing he was buying was curdled goat milk that had been dried out into little balls that were almost indistinguishable from rocks that were being used to tell him how much he owed for the purposes of maintaining calcium in your body in the wintertime. <laughs> so I, that's what I mean. It's just like you go from Washington, DC, summer. With a glass to, of milk. Yeah. Like <laughs> with a good
0: old glass of milk.
1: Alcohol. Not to mention alcohol. Like where are you gonna find alcohol in Afghanistan? It's a dry country, you know? I mean, i we found it, but <laughs> it's not easy. So it just, <laughs> ah. Like, yeah, crazy. Or the stories I got from the Catholic priest in the Italian embassy, because I did some work for Catholic news service and he was telling me about, you know, that he'd been there for, he had been asked to come back by Pope John, uh, Pope Paul. um, Who was the the Pope everybody loved? I'm losing my, my marbles here. Um, I think it was Paul. I want to say Paul the Sixth, but I don't think I'm right about that. Uh, it'll come to me. In any case, I mean, he had been in and out of Afghanistan for over, over. You know, when the Russians were there, when the Taliban came in, just the stories of of somebody who's been that kind of witness to history in a part of the world's pretty phenomenal. Um, yeah, yeah,
0: that's a beautiful crazy and story. Tragic.
1: Yeah, beautiful just... and tragic. And it it turned me. It turned my professional um arc towards getting to do more international journalism that's what basically led me to working with the chinese television network for the next almost decade and and i just left a couple of years ago and that was a whole nother set of cross-cultural adventures that i talk about because america and china have a lot in not common culturally <laughs> so there's a lot of learning from there
0: i have to ask you my father kept like a it was almost like like a little paragraph in the newspaper that was explaining kind of the threat that comes with the new leader of China. Can you can can you you know like?
1: You mean Xi Jinping?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, like someone was very you know. Real. Like that.
1: Yeah, that's very real. I it I I read all of that at the time and started to watch the noose tighten, the grip tighten on, on, um, communications and on media. Um, I, I was skeptical that it would happen as quickly as it did, but it, and it, because it wasn't affected. I didn't, I left once it started affecting the work that I could do. Um, but, uh, I think the real catalyst was two years ago when Xinjiang and the atrocities happening there with uh, the Chinese Muslims being, you know, put away in camps and, and forcibly retrained or re-educated in their religious traditions. They're not allowed to wear, you know, they're not allowed to go to mosque, they're not allowed to pray, they're not allowed to have beards and, and, and you know, forced sterilization of the women. I mean, just horrible, horrible things that we haven't heard since maybe not, you know, the Nazi uh, Nazi atrocities. It's, it's pretty, or the Hutus and the Tutsis in, in Rwanda, pretty, pretty bad stuff. And once that began to be whitewashed that was pretty horrible um because yeah, I mean, that was to a point gr- go ahead I'm sorry
0: no I was just about to say you know like to a point where you know like I, I was telling that to the person I was with at lunch and he's like well Alex you know like we're at war I'm like what are you saying he's like yeah with, with the prisoner we you got from Huawei that we got <laughs> yeah. from in Canada from Huawei yeah it's yeah, like yeah. You know, you, you may not realize it, but you know, like we're at war right now. He was just yeah, telling me yeah, about some telcos. Yeah. Yeah. There was some telco that were, you know, that dropped Huawei and, you know, major moves from some of the major telcos here. And he's like, that everyone is right now just like fighting. Um, you know, it goes uh, like and both ways. That, you need know? a
1: bigger price, right? For, was it Meng Wan the, the, um see the, the CFO of Huawei yep. um, who yeah and, and then you had those two uh, businessmen taken captive uh, and not released yet and and China I mean from from my vantage point part of the reason I wasn't kiddam was because Chinese investment was so intense in the oil sands and so there was a lot there was a lot of very intricate business deals and there had been more openness in Canada. Even in the U.S., at least overtly, to welcoming Chinese investment and Chinese partnerships, and so um, and obviously the Chinese want the resources that Canada has, the natural resources. Yep. So, um,
0: and when I yeah, when I when stuff. I sign when I sign my new house, um, there's actually a clause which is something new that um, asks is if it's a foreign investor, and it could be blocked. By really. Yeah. There's there's like like special clause. And when I asked the um what's the name of Le Notaire? Um anyways that the the lady or or the notary. The notary. Yeah.
1: Um
0: she was telling us that it was because of um foreign, especially with China investments. Well, they bought
1: up almost all of um Vancouver, right? I mean
0: and and some of North, you know, like some of our north resources.
1: Yeah, oh especially yeah. Especially
0: gold mines and you know, yeah, mm-hmm. and
1: yeah, uh, I mean if the oil sands hadn't gone bust, <laughs> the, the time will come again. But uh yeah, I think um Sinopec had a big part in some of the development of uh, the oil sands that we saw up there Where's
0: and there? I think we Fort McMurray. Yeah, and we were we were we trusted kind of that um, almost like that we are the world syndrome you know like oh everyone's friendly friendly and mm. you know like and why you know like we 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 didn't um especially in canada like we didn't um build much of our resources everything was made in china and you know like there was a lot of stuff that we can to yeah. realize like the pandemic has accelerated that but it was just like mm. oh shit we can't do vaccines we can't do masks we can't do we can't do shit anymore <laughs> yeah. yeah how are <laughs> you doing with vaccines
1: now do you guys um, have what you need what's the update it's
0: yeah, yeah we're, we're we're almost like um above average of <laughs> okay. everyone worldwide you know like we're we're doing fantastic on, <coughs> on, on shots you know like i'm, I'm double shotted and uh <laughs> most of people um are um and it's funny because um i the the I was I, I work in technology and uh, I'm I spoke to a customer that is actually waiting from for um, Health Canada to approve the the you know like that they create you know like they, they have the capacity to create the, you know like that we have like a, ca- a vaccine made in Canada. Mm-hmm. It's all they're waiting for is for the thumbs up from Health Canada so that they mass produce so we're yeah. going to be able to um, export or at least um create uh the vaccine for us here you know so that's that's great news. Jessica yeah. thanks a lot for your time. You know like this is um the, an your unusual uh the opportunity. Unusual for me. Usually I have like the 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 people you know like so um like the eating disorder or the drug addiction or you know like even myself was you know I like kind you know like um I myself, uh, you know, I, I've been 16 years sober, so it was always, but I love where you brought me um in your life story. It's just uh phenomenal. And you know, like it one thing that I do um take away from our conversation is kind of the getting out of your comfort zone, which you did like like that leap of faith is let me say fucking crazy, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it looks crazier the
1: longer it's been since I've done it. Let me tell you now that I have two small children for sure. Um, But uh, yeah, sometimes you have to do that, right? Um, And and I would just put a a little humble plug in for the book. It's 150 pages, it's Crossing the Divide. It's on Amazon, Uh, Jessica Stone, that's me, I'm the author. And uh, I really think it's an important message that I think you also share which is that it is important for us to get out of our comfort zones. And we need to teach our young people that that is a part of what they need to be able to do. And it's so that are so much more insular than I think, yeah, the world is big, but the world's also all on their phone. And so they don't have the same desire sometimes to get out of their comfort zone in a physical way to actually meet new people and talk with new people and relate to new people. And it's so important for their professional lives and their personal lives uh, and their ability to be successful in the workplace in particular, because cross-cultural intelligence, cultural intelligence, getting along with people that are different than yourself is identified as the top 10, among the top 10 skills you need in the future of work by the Future of Work uh, Foundation, Institute of the Future of Work, excuse me, Institute for Work, Institute for the Future. Okay. Got there eventually. In any case. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, we're all in the pen. We saw it in the pandemic, right? You're working virtually, you're working cross continentally and you don't, you, you don't get to have lunch or tea or coffee or work out or go to the movies with these people. You're just meeting them on a screen. You have to create some level of trust to create whatever it is you're assigned to create together to, to make, you know, your company successful. It's a really important soft skill set, and we don't. I think, in at least in the states, we don't we don't educate enough. I suspect in Canada it's better. I always think of the Canadians as more cross culturally competent than Americans. Um, hopefully, that's that's the case. But nonetheless, well, we're a really just, good. I think primer. We
0: just trust more. I think just Jessica, you know, like we're, we're less. We're just less cautious. To a to a fault at some point, mm-hmm. you know, like you know, like the, you know, So, is it being more open? I mean, if if you if you travel out of you know, like the the the, the big cities, you're gonna see some, you know, uneducated
1: oh, some morons. Too, yeah. You know, like you know,
0: like really, you know, like but <laughs>
1: yeah. you know,
0: and I I, right I can door. I can actually um, testify that just by the podcast. <laughs> um, it, you know, like w- what I mean by that is, you know, um, the, the bilingualism is something that, you know, like if I, if I travel out of Montreal and not too far, you know, like like 40, 50 minutes away from Montreal, I'm unable to have an English speaking conversation.
1: Yeah, um, no, no doubt.
0: No doubt. You know, so, so yeah. if you start right there, can you imagine if we're talking about, you know, like a, a guy from India or from eighty or you know like I mean, right? You know like it's it's rough and um. I'm and always I think,
1: surprised you know, at how um French French has evolved with a lot more English words and really like French Canadian French has is is much more ancient French. Like yeah. you say you say um, fin semaine, don't you? You don't say le weekend.
0: Mostly I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or hot dog, you say chien. you know, you don't, it's it's yep. just these, and in, in, in Paris, you're just not going to hear that anymore. You hear so much English now in France because of the European Which, Union and the common currency and all of that.
0: Yeah, but there's a feeling that, you know, like France, French is actually a dying. Um, it's dying. While right here in Montreal, there's actually, we have, um, through bilingual singing hip hop artists for example that that mm. that raps in franglish right you know, like mm-hmm. you know like just like their flow is really um a through franglish flow uh which i do appreciate myself but uh there's there's been people that are super protectionist that are saying don't kill the yep. french language with you know like by by bilingual my God, I'm not going to get there, but by, by, together, throwing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. by throwing the two, the two language in there, but I'm, I'm not of that. I think our culture is um, much stronger than that, but you know, um, is it a, you know, is it good that our government is uh, or at least our province government is uh, putting laws to make sure that we don't get fully uh, assimilated in English? I mean, yeah, I don't think it's a bad idea, But um, working on a day-to-day basis with my colleagues in Toronto and some in West, I mean, it's gonna take hundreds of years before you know, like they make us um, the you know, like similar. You know, like Mm -hmm. Quebec is so different from the rest of Canada. You know, like so different. Don't get me
1: started. My own (laughs) observations, but yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. And but I mean, that's also something that I think the Canadian national government. Maintains and protects Quebec for with uh, it, it's certainly the Trudeau
0: government. Some of them did. Some of them do. Some you know like uh, Trudeau right now is you know like he's from here right you know like yeah. he, he understands that. Um, some did less of that you know like ARPER was just like right. didn't care. Um, even I think the opposite you know like it would have pref- preferred that you know like we get integrated just
1: but <laughs> just uh, falling away
0: uh, <laughs> exactly just yeah take that part of the country out um and so yes i mean for 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 the listeners all of the you know like all of the book or books that you know jessica wants to share with listeners um it's all going to be found on the description of the episode as much as um every social media links that she's going to share with me you can find them um so you didn't have to pause to uh to find the it conquer the divide right uh, cross the, crossing the divide yeah crossing the divide sorry and yeah we, and we especially had the conversation like, to be careful about the conquest but yeah. uh, <laughs> but uh, thanks again for your time jessica really appreciate it it's um it's great conversation i just had you know like i i love that and we could have so many more i mean it's um i, I, I love that hello. so Merci beaucoup, Jessica. Vraiment <laughs> apprécié. Thank you. Take
1: okay. care. OK. Bye. Bye-bye.